peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We're everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend, not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by me, Haley Mitsui, John Huckins, and Jer Swigart. And as always, we're going to ease into this week's conversation with a question of the week. Do you remember a movie or TV show you watched obsessively when you were young? Two come to mind. First of all, they were dubbed off of television onto VHS cassettes. Naturally. So they were, I didn't realize that movies were actually still and clear until, <laughs> you know, like I went to the theater the first time. Remember the tracking device? You got to hit tracking on your, your VCR. Oh Yikes. The two for me, uh, very different genres, really. Number one, Swiss Family Robinson. Yeah, okay. classic. How about that one, hey? I mm. love those co- those coconut bombs. Uh, I wondered where you learned your Eagle Scout skills. Well, you know, I mean... <laughs> Uh, you'll know, you'll notice, and this is, this is true to peacemaking for him. You'll notice that no one ever died because of a coconut bomb. It was a kind of a, it was more of a, you know, more of a shocker, more of a sound effect, I think, to get those pirates away from their, their, uh, tree house. And then secondly, Goonies changed my life. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. The, the, the movie Goonies. Makes me believe, and I, I live up in Oregon, and I we travel to the Oregon coast from time to time. And when I'm up there, I see those big rocks, and I just I have to believe that there are pirate ships that are still yeah, trapped in those things. <laughs> I eat I, my favorite ice cream is Rocky Road as a result of all of that. That is deeply impactful, habit forming. Um, I was truly obsessed with the Three Ninjas, which I don't mean to call this out, but there's a tiny bit of an age difference between me and John and Jer. That probably makes us not have grown up on the same movies, but uh, it's three little Jonathan white Taylor kids. Jonathan Taylor Thomas in that one? Or? <laughs> okay. I had three Jonathan Taylor Thomas posters in my, in my oh, room. Oh, I knew it. I loved him. Sorry, No, Brad. but... There's, it's a, yeah, three ninjas, you gotta, you gotta go look it up, it's probably not fantastic, but my favorite thing in retrospect is there are three white kids with a Japanese grandfather, and I'm still, I'm not totally sure how that all works, but, I mean, they're just little ninjas, um... I don't think I can think of another one. I just literally used to walk up to Rainbow Mart, the little video store by our house every weekend, and I would rent Three Ninjas. Saturday morning, 5.30 a.m., back to back. Why in the world would you be up that early? Because it was the only time they aired it. There was no TiVo. There was no recording. (laughs) Jetsons and Gumby. Back to back, wow. it was like a dream. By 6.30, my TV viewing is off. My my parents are kicking me outside to go play. But I've had my fill, and I'm satisfied. <laughs> and uh, and then it, it, the next the next generation or the next season, it became Dumb and Dumber and the movie Speed. Oh, man. Yeah, classic. So, like, summertimes, my best buddy and I would watch Dumb and Dumber in the morning and Speed in the afternoon. Parents come home from work wow. and just repeat it day after wow. day. I quote. I used to, with my cousins, walk through the whole script of Dumb and Dumber verbatim from memory. That are you gonna start a spin-off podcast that's just you reciting Dumb and Dumber? 
you know, now that you brought it up, I think, uh, I think it's something worth considering. Hey, we are, um, we're fired up about this episode and, um, we're gonna, you're gonna meet, uh, someone named Ryan Crane, who is a teacher and who is living out the everyday peacemaking way of life in some incredibly creative ways, ways that are leveraging his influence, uh, and broken stuff is getting fixed as a result. So we're, we're anxious to jump into that. Let's head into the conversation with Ryan. All right, everybody, we have a guest who we are thrilled to introduce to you on the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. His name is Ryan Crane, and he is a dear friend and someone who has been journeying himself uh, and inviting many others on the journey towards the Everyday Peacemaking way of life. And so thrilled to have you on here, my friend. Welcome. Hey, Johnny. Glad to be on with you. Uh, As we jump in, we want to hear a specific story where we've seen this very intentional, practiced way of life take shape in your life. But before we do that, would you just give a little little intro into who you are and where you live? Yeah, for sure. Uh, my name is Ryan Crane. I live in the Seattle area. I'm a social studies teacher. I am 33 years old. I have a wife named Marissa and a one-year-old golden retriever named Walter. Uh, most of my teaching career has been in a white, mostly middle to upper class uh, school. And so that's where a lot of this context from the story comes from. Awesome. And you feel good about Walter right now? Is he, is he making it through this transition? I know you're moving soon. We, we want to be a privy to the dog's needs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He senses something is going on, um, but he is eating rocks uh, less. I've never been so tied to another thing's uh, bowel movements. Yeah. Sorry, that might need to be edited out. Um, but yeah, this little puppy trying to, trying to get through his first year of life, uh, definitely, definitely want to I mean, take in, care of him. In everyday peacemaking language, you are choosing to see Walter <laughs> in ways that are allowing you to contend for his yeah, bowel movements. Thank yeah, you. for hey, sure. Hey, let's, uh, for the sake of time, we want to, we want to jump into a specific story where, you know, as I've heard you share this and even walked with you to some degree as it was unfolding, um, to me, it was a reflection of, of confession and repentance and, and mustard seeds of, of restoration, like few others I've heard. And so mm. uh, is in the context of you as a teacher in this, again, largely white evangelical space um, and something tragic happened and you were forced to ask what did restoration look like? So you want to jump in with that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, to add a little context, I was uh, hired eight years ago to teach social studies, again, at a uh, white, uh, private Christian school in, uh, in the Seattle area. And uh, along with me entering as a social studies teacher, I also brought a passion for social justice. And uh, so out of the passion for social justice came a social justice class, an advanced class, and, and a club that were sort of a part of the overarching um, program And over the years, the social justice program really became a safe space for students on the margins in the school community to just come and sit and like vent and listen to each other. Um, we always called my classroom the sacred space. So, yeah, in the spring of 2018, we were learning in class about the refugee journey. And this is with the social justice class. And this was in particular a really, really special group of students. Not that it was like an echo chamber, but like 
people were safe with each other to really dig in and ask questions and make mistakes. So this is a really, really solid group. Um, we're learning about the refugee journey. And uh, during that lesson, I had a quote on the board from a UCLA professor of uh, English, Viet Thanh Nguyen. Uh, and the, and the, uh, the quote said, refugees are not a crisis or issue. They're striving, flawed, beautiful humans. Came to class the next morning and on my board, I saw uh, hate speech, hateful words next to the word refugees. Uh, and the words were specifically targeting the black community and Muslims. And in that moment, I had a choice. Uh, I was the only one in the room at the time. I had a choice. Do I erase it? Um, and just pretend like it, that stuff doesn't exist or not deal with the work that it would take to like engage that well, or do I use it? Um, do I continue to pretend that racism doesn't exist here or do I use it to invite the community into like lament and change? Um, real quick, that is, here you are as a white teacher in a evangelical school and your classroom is, is on social justice and it's considered a sacred space for specifically students of color, which one thing is like that could be a whole nother conversation on what was it like to actually create a space where a white teacher creates a sacred, safe space for um, for for kids of students of color. But the other is you're in this moment and what is going through your mind when you see that on the board and you begin to think of the implications of either erasing and turning a blind eye to what was said, maybe that's for the benefit of that, of retaining that sacred space or, or keeping it on the board. Will you invite us into that, that moment? Yeah, that moment was, um, was hard. It was like five minutes before school began. So it had to be a pretty quick decision. Um, I, at first was just like shocked and trying to figure and trying to like find clarity in my brain for even how to do this because this was our sacred space being disrupted um i thought of uh in that moment i thought of okay if i do choose to use this i'm using uh trauma that is not of my own um i have more in common with like the oppressor in the situation than those uh, impacted by it um i thought of the resistance that would likely come from advocacy like this and i Full transparency, I struggle with, with resistance from older white males uh, because those are the people that raised me, so to speak. And I feel like I shut down and um, I'm disrespectful if I question and, you know, question status quo. So that was hard in that moment for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So so what what did you decide to do and, and what unfolded next? Yeah. So I um, I invited into my office, a group of students, um, that were sort of the social justice leaders. Most of them were students of color. And I was like, Hey, something just happened to our space. Um, I thought about not showing you this. I thought about not moving towards this, but like, I think it would be important because I'm, I often hear your, uh, daily realities of like micro and macro aggressions of racism in the school community. So I feel like we should, you know, move towards this and try to make the place better. Um, and so I showed them they were angry, but also not surprised. Uh, this was just a more explicit version of the implicit daily reminders. Um, we talked some more and 
they wanted, many of them wanted to just like blow up social media and cancel the place out, cancel um, dissenters out. Um, but we decided as a group to keep it amongst ourselves and regroup, uh, essentially mobilize and figure out how we can use this as like a form of creative resistance in our community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you, you know, you know, I've talked about this many times and you've, you've had our, your students go through our everyday peacemaking trainings. And, you know, this is the moment of contending, right. Of, of discerning, what does it look like not to get even, but get creative and love to expose the pain, the brokenness, the division, the conflict for what it is rather than perpetuate it, but to do it in ways that look like creativity and growth and nonviolence how did you do that? Like, what what are you thinking now as a, a, a teacher, trainer, guide, sacred space host on how you begin to expose this evil? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and again, the I as a teacher, I want to have uh, give students voice and have them their experiences heard amongst each other. So I picture when you ask that question, I picture my office, I picture the big table, I picture all these students gathering before school, at lunch, after school because they felt this urgency. Um, and I said, we gotta, if we're going to do this, we gotta be creative. We gotta invite, we can't, um, you can choose to, uh, just drop the mic and move on. But like, let's think this through. We got to do this in a way that makes the place better for younger kids coming through. Um, and so they created a list of requests or asks for those in power. Um, I walked them through this a little bit, but these were mostly their ideas, um, and these are the asks were things like um, asking for teacher training around unconscious bias and equity, uh, asking for a statement to be made. Um, a lot of that stuff was sort of tiptoed around by um, those in power. But um, colleague of mine and I, Kelly Lewis, we were on a call in the middle of May of that year with uh, Lisa Sharon Harper to talk about a potential Freedom Road pilgrimage. And Lisa or I haven't asked her if I can call her that, Miss Harper, um, she made the mistake of asking us how we were doing in that moment. Mm. And we were like, yeah. we just like unloaded. And she said like, hey, what if students shared their stories? And so I, we met again with the students and we mentioned the story sharing idea and they loved it. And the students then went to work over the next few weeks to create the environment that that would happen in and ask for permission from um, administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and honestly, and I know you are so aware of this, those that are impacted by, in this case, as you talk about this implicit bias that was exposed so viscerally on the board, um, they don't have the responsibility necessarily to walk with, your students of color didn't have responsibility to walk with the other students through this journey, but, but they are compelled to come up with a very tangible list of ways that there can be some systemic change and invite the community into their story. What drove them to that? Like how, why was it they were willing to offer that kind of generosity towards the community? It hurt them. Yeah. I, I think of something that, uh, one of the students said, he said, um, in closing of the thing that the space we held, he said, I graduate in a few days. I did not have to sit in front of you and relive my trauma for you, but I'm here for the young kids at the elementary school that look like me, that will be in your classrooms one day. This is my legacy. And that's really why they showed up. Most of these students were graduating, but they like, they needed to show up for those coming after them. Yeah. 
and you're in a position of actual, of like administrative leadership and influence in the, in the school. Also knowing your job's probably on the line, honestly, if this is going to be disruptive, like this is creative, it's nonviolent, but it's also disrupting a very status quo uh, of this community. You, you create space on the stage for them and then you go to faculty to do some work and training, if I remember as well. Yeah, the, the training specifically happened after um, this space that the students held. Uh, the training then catalyzed a equity team that was um, that was built. Though parents had started one earlier, this sort of became a bigger thing within the school. Equity training is the next year for um, students and teachers. Um, can I share a little bit of the the space that they held? Cool. Um, so. There's about 70 faculty members that gathered in the learning commons area. Uh, and then 12 students entered, most of them um, seniors, most of them students of color, and took a seat on the, um, the little stools facing their teachers, those that essentially raised them in terms of school. Um, after a minute of silence, one of the students explained to everyone in the room what would happen next. Each student on down the line would share something that was true to their story as it pertains to race and whoever else in the room. It was true to would snap their fingers together after uh, because the majority of the people in the room were white. There weren't many snaps aside from the students in front. So things that were shared were like, I've been told that race-based trauma in my own story is untrue. I've tried to distance myself from my race because of insecurity. I've been asked to speak on behalf of people of my race. I have been the only person of my race in a classroom. I have been asked where I am from because of how I look. Mm. Um, and most, it was mostly just the students in the front snapping. Um, one student shared what it was like to be a Palestinian Muslim female in a white Christian community where her people being displaced and their land taken is seen as a necessary step of the Christian journey. She shared how she would stay home from school on 9-11 because she didn't want to deal with the looks and the questions. Another student shared what it was like to be a black male in a white suburban neighborhood, um, being followed by a police car when he was jogging, pulled over, hands on the hood, questioned what he was doing in that, in that community. He said he lived there. He brought the officer to his house, and sure enough, there was uh, the student's black parents standing at the door. Mm. Um, we finished with stories. We finished the stories being shared with a prayer with pinky fingers like we do at Friendship Park. Yeah. At the U.S.-Mexico border. And uh, this was, I think this was the big moment at the end uh, where I was most worried about, um, I was worried about the teacher's reaction because students just like called them out in a lot of ways. Would the teachers just like peace out? Would they leave? Would they, uh, what would they do? And it was just a beautiful moment of teachers moving towards the students and embracing and crying and grieving and asking um asking, then asking administration what they could do better. Mm. If you would say you saw restoration anywhere in that story, you, the students, the administration, where was it? I think love is the common denominator of all of the teachers at that school for sure. And uh, I saw their love for students being called out. And then I saw empathy build in that room. Mm. It was very much like a, a spiritual vibe that yeah. I felt in that room. Yeah. Um, and then uh, teachers then doing something active with that empathy and asking for change in the school, asking for training that I think that's where I saw 
um, a lot of the restoration, as well as students, um, these students being able to share their truth with their faculty without consequence. Yeah, um, that would be another. Yeah, this is the stuff, right? Like this is the this is the everyday peacemaking way of life that is not. Uh, <laughs> It's not contrived. You weren't cr- trying to create a situation so you could live this otherworldly or heroic peacemaking life. It's literally about, in this case, not erasing something that's on the board that is wildly offens- offensive so you could go on a learning journey together towards healing and to think of ways that you contended and leverage your influence to create space for those students to contend ultimately for their peers and the faculty. And then those people are actually seeing, not only seeing those students differently, they're seeing themselves differently. They're confronting their own bias. They're confronting the reality that they are on the privileged side of the equation in that school. That to me is the stuff of good news. And that's what this story is in so many ways. So man, we are inspired and we are grateful and, uh, yeah, you have any any last words you want to say before we sign off? Uh, to my students, any of my students that may have heard this, um, you matter. I cherish this part of our journey together. I don't hold your experiences and advocacy lightly. I hope I hope this is honoring to you. Beautiful. Well, I feel like I have to start this debrief because I. I went to an all-white Christian school in Seattle, not the same one Ryan's talking about, um, and and was one of the only non-white students in my class Mm. and school. And just hearing him, I was just crying. (laughs) And it was funny because I actually thought my, I thought I was going to feel a little bit more sad, like sad for myself that I didn't have a teacher like that. And I actually was, actually felt like this weird lightness and almost healing Mm. when Mm. he was quoting that student, the student who said, I'm, I'm doing this for the students that are coming after me, who are going to be coming into these classrooms as, you know, kindergartners of color. And I was like, no, you're also doing this for the students who came before you who were Mm. not under any way was I ever going to be given that platform to say anything about my experience in front of the school. But by sharing that, I felt like, oh, that he was also speaking on behalf of those of us that were in those situations years ago. So that was that was a really healing experience for me personally. Hales, can I can I put you on the spot for a second then? Because I I, I, sure silent is some is something that I would never use to describe you with regard re, with regard to anything justice and and rest, restorative related. And uh, so I'm curious as you reflect back on that. I mean, this is a real time processing moment. How did your experience of being one of the only minority learners in that space? How do you think that has shaped you now to be such a fierce advocate, ally, uh, and and peacemaker? Well, I remember starting at this school in seventh grade. I went to a public school um, before that where most of the students were Asian. And so, and going into this all white school was very jarring. And this one day, this kid came to school wearing this incredibly racist shirt that I won't even quote. And I was just shocked. And even as a 12 year old, I was like, and and I talked to the principal and I raised a, you know, a, a, 
whatever noise and everybody just turned on me. Hmm. Who's this new kid? She's threatening our status quo. She's so sensitive, blah, blah, blah. And that shut me down for six years, basically. And when I got into college, I mean, I had my little moments, I think, where the true Haley came out and maybe these little moments of resistance. But when I got to college and, and was able to kind of, I think, open up a little bit and be around different kinds of people, I looked back at that Haley and was like, I'm never... I will never silence myself Mm. like that. Mm -hmm. I will never allow Mm. myself to be um, shamed into silence or to my presence to be, you know, an agitator in that way or whatever. So, yeah, it it was I think, though, that was that was what shaped me, honestly, into the the outspoken person I am now because I had to bottle it up for so long. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Thanks, Hales. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I'm even hearing you interact with that Haley and, and how intimate of a reflection that is based on your own story, not only as who you are um, as a woman of color, but who lived in the same city and went to a school next Thank to where you. Ryan is telling the story. But I, I'm I'm struck by the courageous and costly nature of what contending looked like in that story. I mean mm-hmm. We're not joking around, and, and there was conversations with Ryan when this is happening. He he very well could have lost his job. He could have lost his reputation and esteem within the community he had inherited and been groomed by growing up in that space. These students, like we said, and he was very clear to point out, owed none of this to their faculty or their peers, but courageously and very costly exposed their own stories and trauma and gifted that community with that. And to hear of the ways that th- those very courageous decisions had an impact, not only on personal transformation, but systems change mm-hmm. is just, is really compelling to me. It doesn't sound, it didn't sound like a one-off story. This sounded like a systems reality because there was a community moving down this path together. Right. Um, it's allowing others to be healed of their blindness and experience liberation and healing. Yeah, well, sure. and I was noticing too in, in, his when he was sharing is there multiple times throughout Ryan's story where he said, Oh, and I noticed my um like my want to do this. Like I noticed that I immediately wanted to erase this. I noticed that my conditioning towards authority of white men and wanting to be submissive to and so this is also like you were saying, not a one time thing. Like Ryan has been growing these muscles for years. That's right. And so we didn't get a, we didn't necessarily hear that part of the story, but it's not like he woke up one day, like when this incident happened and everything, it's like he has been building his capacity to notice these dis areas of dissonance for a long time. Yeah. And I I would say like in, in building that muscle notice is probably even the wrong verb. Uh, see, I think there's a, there's a journey that we take from noticing to seeing. And I think early on, as he was cultivating that muscle, as you point out, we noticed things. I think he walked into that classroom and he saw something uh, and what he saw stopped him dead in his tracks. And, it, and he knew that that was the opportunity for next level transformation, not only for him, but for his students and potentially for his entire school. I think that's what happens, though, when we dare to take the journey from noticing to seeing. Um, 
So I, John, and I was so glad that you picked out in, in the interview too. this, it was almost like a throwaway statement that he made that you rescued and brought it back to, brought back up to the surface that somehow he had cultivated space where, where marginalized don't feel safe, but are safe. And gosh, if we could figure out how to continue that conversation with him in, in future episodes, how do we cultivate spaces, especially as dominant culture folk? where mar- our marginalized sisters and brothers don't feel safe, but they truly are safe. Um, that, that, feel, that, just, that rang hard for me in terms of how do I show up into relationships or even into physical locations in ways that communicate you are safe with me, where we can be safe together. You know, that, that really felt, that felt really significant. Yeah. Something too on that is like, is it, is it true that the only way to create a safe space is to actually say the hard stuff or acknowledge the hard stuff. Cause he talked about the point when the, the, the racist comment was on the board and he had the choice to erase it or to acknowledge it and try to heal from it. And, and I think that's, you know, we talk about conflict transformation a lot, right? Like the only path towards healing and restoration is moving through the conflict. It's not, it's not setting it aside. It's in, in this context of racism, it's not being colorblind. It's being color competent. It's understanding our stories. It's naming what is reality, even if it's painful. And that sets us off on this journey. So I'm just thinking even right now, you know, at the time of this recording, as we're talking, we're in the middle of a historic moment in our country of this, the realities of systemic racism rising to the surface, what does it mean for me and for us not to just erase that off the board and move on, but to name it and to peel it back as painful as it is so we can experience healing together? Right, right. And, and, and the verb that he actually used, like rather than erase it, he used the verb use it. I want to I use it. I, like, man, that's, that's powerful. That, that is... That's the language of a peacemaker, you know, um, for sure. I, I do want to, along those lines, I want to point out, I think, something really in- interesting with regard to his obstacle. So the offense was the, were the words on the board, and then he goes through this, do I, do I erase it or use it? Then the obstacle that he identified, and you said it here too, Hales, is like, I usually shrink back to the presence of white male leadership. Right. So he, he was able to acknowledge ah that the obstacle for me in this moment, rather than to erase it, but to use it is going to be how I interact with power. And but then pay attention to what he did to move through the obstacle. He didn't just gird up his loins and say, well, I'm going to do this anyway. He invited the imp, his impacted students to reflect with him. So his, in order to transcend the obstacle, he invited the impacted community to offer their analysis. And then in offering the analysis, that's when they began to co-create their ideas around what it would look like for them to contend. So in this case, he knew what his obstacle was. Uh, to immerse into it more deeply meant that he had to crawl outside of his own perspective and get some other people's take on it. And then once they had done that, now we understand what it looks like to get creative in love. Uh, and, and that's what it, that's what happened. I love that. And I know, I know Ryan's very sensitive to, to being perceived as a, as a white savior, you know, in this, in this story. But I think one of the key indicators that he's not fulfilling that role is that he is the authority in this story, and yet he led, humbly followed the lead of his students, you know? And, and I think that only happens when you, when you allow yourself to fully immerse into their pain 
and to not let your ego move your action, but let the relationship dictate where you go. Um, I found that to be very compelling. So thank you to Ryan Crane again for helping us in the context of your own story. Learn that we cannot look away when racism needs to be exposed for what it is, especially within white institutions, for leveraging your influence and for giving us seeds of what restoration can look like. So friends, God's restoration is happening. Now go participate in it and know you're not alone. For more information on the work of Global Immersion, visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope and The Eagle and Child. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts.